Welcome to Market Proof Marketing, the podcast from the Marketing Minds at DoYouConvert.com, where we talk about the current state of all things digital and how they impact home builders and developers around the globe. We're not here to sell you. We're here to help you and to try and elevate the conversation. I'm Kevin Oakley, and with me today, as always, is the ad doctor, Andrew Peake. We are here, episode 168, with Julie Jarnigan. Hello. How are you guys? Great. The uh, future International Builder Show presenter, Julie Jarnigan. Ah, yay. I'm excited. Answered some cool clapping noises. Yeah, I'm super excited yes. too, to see you up there. It's Very always excited. fun to see how people do on a stage in front of a crowd. And <laughs> I'd never seen Julie do that before the summit, but I had full confidence and she killed it. So it, oh, well, thank you. I'm excited. And maybe that doesn't mean anyone's good or better at it. It's just some people are able, you're a better poker player. You couldn't tell. <laughs> That you were you shaking go. on the inside if you were shaking. <laughs> well, and I had good panelists with me, so they did a great job and made me look good. So what are you speaking on? Do you remember? At the, at the I, show? Yes. Digital tools, real world examples of using digital tools to create more and better content. So how you can kind of cheat the system a little bit by using some tips and tricks and tools to nice. create more. With real life examples. That's real the best life part. examples. That's yes. that's my like. I get weird when it's like a tactical or practical thing. And it's like, but you didn't use this thing. Like, how are you talking about this? But there's no like real life example where you're like, oh, I will use that next week, next week, next day. So yeah, super excited for you. Yeah, awesome. I am too. Let's hop into story time. And Andrew, why don't you go first? Yeah, let's go first. So I feel like this has been a common theme. And I, and I also feel like that's also a way I, I think I intro stories often. We need to have like a, like a segment of like my intros. It's the same three or four ways I introduce my story. But I have this question that's lingering in my brain. It's bouncing around back and forth. And I've decided in 2021, if you are confident with your marketing strategy, is attribution supporting better or worse decision-making? And it's just this thought that I have when driving down the road. I'm like, hmm. So attribution is getting worse as far as we have less data. Um, there's more machine learning to make, you know, fill in the gaps. Privacy is getting better or worse, depending on your perspective. I think we, we need things to be more private. So that's just, that trend is going to be exponential. So like in three years, I think it's going to be 10x more private than it is now. So attribution just is, is kind of, I don't say falling apart because that sounds like the sky is falling and, and there's no, we can't t- trust data. But if you lean too heavily on it, you make these type of decisions. If you don't lean any on it, if you don't lean into it at all, you make this type of decision. So I'm like, oh, there's a lot of people that tend to be like either or versus kind of balancing in the middle or just using it. So it's kind of a, a question story that's been just on my mind for I guess a few months now, but then it's finally catalyzed into like, oh, is it making worse or better decision making? I don't know. What are, what are your guys' thoughts? I feel like it's still my, my kind of standard answer is still holds confidence with me. That's good, Kevin. You agree with yourself. <laughs> um, I mean, it, For our needs, industry, to, that's it, it needs to inform what you're doing. Yes. I think there's, a bigger danger when people are newer to the industry uh, or newer to the digital world to over index in what the attribution data is saying and Mm -hmm. not just use their brain. And what I mean by that is 
you know, new homes, Dublin, Ohio. If I sell new homes in Dublin, Ohio, if I got 50, a hundred, 200 clicks over a period of time, as long as those clicks are reasonably affordable with what I, I know to be the market, like I'm not dramatically overpaying. Uh, I kind of don't care about the conversion because the conversion oftentimes will tell you more about what you're offering in your website or your landing page is about than new homes, Dublin, Ohio from the three fifties, this square footage to that square footage. If that's the ad format that you're using there, I always want people, yeah. if I'm selling homes in Dublin, Ohio, I want them to click on that link as long as that link is reasonably affordable. Why would and, you not want that click ever? Essentially, like you will always want it. Yeah. And I think that's where some people who don't know us very well or or would say, well, but it really matters what the ad says because what probably means your ad is wrong or you're targeting the wrong word. Like no, the word is new homes, Dublin, Ohio. That is exactly what I offer single family homes in Dublin, Ohio that are brand new and you're qualifying with price and location and some detail about the offering. Yeah. You want to run that. Yeah, I agree. I, I think the, and then step, we're kind of going down the Google rabbit hole, which I think is the simpler one. Like then you go to yeah. what about new homes, Columbus. And then to me, that's when it starts to get gray where you have to have the principles and experience like, well, you only have two communities throughout Columbus. It might not work very well, but if you have 12 or 15, then that keyword could work better because yeah, you have that, more choices. That's so why then you I, get like down these rabbit holes and flow charts in my brain. At least that's how I think of like if else statements getting kind of nerdy right now with how I think, but like, well, if, if you're this, if you're that else, da, 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 where you don't have to lean as much on attribution or maybe you do. Yeah. I mean, we manage roughly what now, Andrew, per year in Google. Oh man. Rough number. I, Round 10, down, I, th I think 10 million. I'm, I'm trying to, I, I want to wish I, yeah, had, he's not overhyping, but I'm trying to millions of dollars a year anything. spent Clive. across at this point, 54 builders around the country. And sometimes we have, I think I've talked about this before, but we have frenemies who refer each other to work with them. So builder number one says, you guys are awesome. Do you convert? And I've got a friend at builder number two who sells the same house right across the street from me. And I want to introduce you to them because I, I, you're awesome and I think they're awesome. I mean, yeah, they're competitors. That's why I say frenemies. And when I talk about that with some people in the industry, they're like, man, well, how do you balance that? And isn't there a conflict of interest? And it, it comes down to what you're talking about in this case of it's not about attribution in, in terms of primary. The primary is, do you offer homes in this geographic location? What is the offering? And then how badly do you need more traffic around that term for that area? So that, that goes to operational things that are not what do you convert is in charge of. How many communities do you have in that area? What is your takedown requirement? How many do you have to sell? How fast do they have to move? What are your conversion rates? I mean, think about Builder 1 having a three or four times better conversion rate uh, from lead to sale skipping an appointment, just lead to sale two to three times better. Guess what they can afford to do? P pay more. And they're willing yeah. to pay more and they would be yelling at us, please pay whatever you need to pay. So it, a lot of the minutia that seems like it could be a conflict of interest really isn't because builder one may not like, Hey, I just want good affordable traffic. That's qualified, but you don't need to keep the foot on the accelerator. And builder number two says, yes, accelerate, accelerate, build another engine. I don't care. We need, like we want it all go, go, go. Yeah. Yeah. So 
I, I think Google is easier to, and again, there's lots of scenarios. This is saying you have a very small defined keyword list. Yes. So, I mean, if we were auditing, there's a lot of assumptions and caveats to all of this conversation. Yeah, Julie, if you were auditing a brand new builder that you started working with and they had 30,000 keywords, some of which didn't even have the word home or new in them. Yeah. Well, attribution is going to be more important as a, something to yep. consider. Yep. And that's where, yeah, we, we look to, because new home construction, if you like compared to other industries, as far as people working in it and just information out there for us, so limited compared to like, if you're right, apparel e-commerce company, I, there's probably like 400 agencies that specialize in that and put out content related to it. So it's like, they might have different attribution because it's just funny t-shirt is what they're bidding on. And so attribution will be extremely important for us. We know like the limited set of keywords. That's what, yeah, I was just sitting there on my brain. I'm like, oh yeah, I think this is a, a good yep. conversation. It could be a whole 360 topic in itself, but we had a little mini one. It was great. I'm done. Story done. I'm going to make some people mad here and Ooh. I'm going to confuse other people. My favorite. When I was at a Heartland, the most important thing to me was trust in my website to do its job. The way it was built, the way it was designed, the content that was there, what I could influence or control around offerings and price and floor plans, et cetera. But if you have supreme confidence that that, that is tooled to do the best possible job, then I want, you know, again, reasonably qualified traffic and as much of it as I can get. And I, I would look at attribution data, but then I would also just look at how much traffic did that source bring. And as long as there's qualification or enough information prior to their arrival of the site to do some of that scrubbing by the consumer around price point, et cetera. And I kind of, at that point, it's on me, not just the advertising source. And because of the muddiness of attribution, I would say, okay, well, here's the, over a period of time, here's the 15 leads that I can directly attribute to this source through attribution. And then here's another number. And I have my own factors and math and we'll go into it because this is a podcast, not a visual medium, but it was a reasonable way to assume a percentage of additional leads that were not attributed to anything other than organic or direct. So it, it probably had that much influence. And, and I would use those numbers when I was negotiating with those different platforms and say, Hey, so, so I, I, to me, it's, it's how good is your website? How much confidence do you have that if you get reasonably qualified traffic to it, that it will do its job. And then, and then you're just kind of, again, using your brain and saying, where are the sources that make sense? And what is the right message at those sources to bring people to this place that have high confidence that it will do its job? Yeah. The people I've seen that really are overly focused on attribution are almost looking for the magic wand that doesn't exist. You know, they're looking for that one secret thing that is going to make all the difference. And it's so much more complex than yeah. that. <laughs> and again, Agreed. I think this is two weeks in a row. Let's, let's, let's try for four. Jim Rohn, don't wish it were easier, wish you were better. You don't want a single report that says do 20% of this, 40% of that. You think you do, you don't. Because then like two months later, I just say, I think we could save your position. This is not that hard. Like the, it just says, do this, do that. And then do you convert and do that? We don't need a marketing manager, do we? Like what, what do we, what do we need you for? Don't be too excited about the future <laughs> yeah. you think you want. That's true. Yeah. All right, Julie, what do you got? 
Okay. So while I was away at Summit, my husband called a company to give us an estimate for an outdoor patio. So simple horse lab, make us a covering. So a glorified pergola or gazebo, you know, something cover it. No mm-hmm. big fireplace or kitchen or anything like that. And so they never, they said, we'll get back to you in a week. They never did. He nudged them. They sent us an estimate for what it would cost for them to draw the plans, which was a lot of money. We were like, Mm -hmm. well, before we pay you to draw the plans, we need like at least a range, a broad range of what this would cost. So they, he said, okay, um, $75,000 max (laughs) is what he told us for our little. How big is this um, thing? But we need some constraints here. How big is this? Like um, concrete, four poles, a little roof. That was all. So like 20 feet wide, 10 feet deep or something like enough. Does it have to be hurricane proof somehow? So it doesn't fly away. No. So one of a few things happened. Shelter. They already have so much work. They got tired of us contacting them and just said, give them a stupid number. So they'll leave us alone. Or they they didn't even remember who they had talked to, but didn't remember what we were asking for. So just gave like what their highest, what they've done, whatever it was. I mean, even if they had just been honest with us and told us, hey, we're so backed up, then maybe we would have contacted them a few months out. But now it's just laughable. So $75,000 was the estimate we got for four poles. and I will do it for 10, (laughs) 10, I think. (laughs) Sounds good. I think we do a do you convert trip. And so, you know, I built the pergola. And my backyard, it's ginormous, definitely hurricane proof. Six by six by 16 is what supports it. It took me four months to finish it. So if you're okay with that, then (laughs) I think we could start it. It might be done. Well, there there are people out there who promote, you know, be, get paid for planning, Julie. So don't ever do anything without charging money for it to provide an estimate, charge a fee, just keep raising your prices are those the kind of experiences as a consumer? This is the other side of that. Cause there's a lot of truth to that from maximizing profit and builders doing the same thing. I saw an article mm-hmm. the other day that uh, four dealerships are now doing last minute surcharges on Bronco reservations, just like builders did like, Hey, here's your car. I know you did a reservation and the price was supposed to be Crazy. X, but there's a chip shortage and a paint shortage and if you still want this car, it's here, but five grand more or whatever. So everyone's doing this yeah. and it's smart from a business perspective. But as a consumer, is that a remarkable experience that you tell people about? What, uh, tell people in a negative way. Well, that's, my, that, that's exactly. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. It, it was, it's the same, yeah. I think kind of the same line of thinking of uh, when text message marketing first became, it was like the open rate is a hundred percent. Okay. Yeah. Cause there's, <laughs> there's an icon on your text message that says, please look at me, but yeah. what is your piss off rate? What is the rate of people who are really pissed off that you keep texting them and you're mm-hmm. not following the rules and you didn't ask permission and there is no opt out. It's kind of the same thing. Yes. You are maximizing your profit, but the consumer experience and the story that they're telling about you is not going to be great. And I, th- I think even in that scenario where maybe you, you, you end up paying 25, 30 at the end of the day, because they're just wildly overquoting you mm-hmm. and they do a good job. Your story, I, I believe, cause this has happened with us on projects will always be qualified by, 
hey, should we use XYZ contractor? I mean, yeah, they do great work. Just know the whole front part of this process is a disaster. Mm-hmm. And I, I just think that's something that people don't take into consideration. And yeah, should. I, I think if you, would it be fair if the, because someone needs to come out, there'll be plenty of other companies that'll come out like, yeah, we'll do an estimate. We'll swing by and like my uncle does, does paving work. And so that's all he does all day is estimates. He doesn't do the actual work. So he's right. He'll be there for an hour, which makes sense. Do you charge for that time? I have no idea. I know what he did last year. I'm like, I think he's totally fine. Not charging for that. Woody grows. I don't know. But is there like a, like $250, $500 for them to come by and essentially give you this estimate? To me, that seems crazy. I don't know. As someone like, if you're going to spend 30 grand for something, like you want to charge me 500 for a chance to work with you. What if I don't like the numbers? What if we don't get along? I don't know. I don't, I don't like that approach. I do understand not wasting your time with people mm-hmm. all week long, but on the, like, but then whenever the market changes and you wish that you had more jobs to do, yeah, mm-hmm. you're not going to have people, you know, going crazy on social media saying, if you ever have a project, these are the people to do it. Yeah. It's going to be like, yeah, they do a great job and they're kind of jerks at the beginning. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I guess once again, I have three story times and two of them are going to be longer. Just prepare yourselves. Buckle up. The first one is I've had part of the on your lot process. I think I mentioned yesterday, I have to install propane tanks on the property. It's utility. So I have to be more involved with that as a homeowner than you might expect out of the gate. Mm -hmm. So tanks are hard to come by pandemic. You know, no, no one wants to sell you a tank. They want to lease you a tank because then they can make money off the tank forever because they're not sure if they'll get all the replacements they want. They make you pre-buy all of your gas for a certain period of time. It's a huge racket, but same thing, Julia. I find this company that has them in stock. They say on their website, I email them. They are slow, take multiple days. Finally get a couple emails back. Yes, we can do it, but I need details from you. I'm like, I already provided those details. Here they are again. Okay, here's a quote. And I say, great, can we go? Well, I just need some more details and I can update the quote. Quote comes out to $14,000 for two propane tanks, one for the pool, one for the house, and -hmm. all this gas that I have to pre-buy for who knows how long. And I also went to the website, filled out a form on the website and said, can someone call me? So someone calls me up, a little hard to understand them, Um, not sure how experienced they were, but she's like, oh, I can can help you. Her quote comes out to $11,000. A little bit. bit It's like, what? <laughs> okay, is that the phone call discount uh, for dealing with a human directly? I, okay, but they only would accept, and this made me super nervous. So I was just, I had the whole day when I was working after this happened, I had my bank account pulled up. So if we only accept e checks, uh, that's shady oh. as I'll get out. No credit cards, no, no nope, yeah. just your routing number and bank account number. And I was like, Okay. Do I want my house to be heated? Yes. Does anyone else have these? I mean, we can, at the end of the day, if, if we get totally ripped off, we can put a, a above ground tank there until someone else can get an in ground tank in. But I was like, man, okay. Bite the bullet. Uh, they charged me the right amount, but service ex- expectation. I'm like, when, when will I talk to someone? Oh, you'll just call extension four, seven, five. Uh, when you don't, if you don't hear from us, you know, it's just ah. You're making me real nervous. I just sent you 11,000 or whatever it was. Yeah. And, and I think yeah. I pre-bought like three years worth of propane that I can then call them to refill, but man, what a racket. 
Um, I'll also quickly, I wanted to pull one of these up and I still don't know cause I'm, I'm nervous to ask them and I think they're nervous to tell me if they do, but the builder is doing a fantastic job on the house overall. This, this, um, kind of just goes in the, I think it's good for everyone listening just to hear, like, if you think you solved a process and this is another common theme of mine, don't ever be okay with where the process is currently. Like check the box, we fixed it, it's done. In this case, it's the weekly update. A lot of companies have the weekly update from the person building your house about what's going on, right? So this is, I'm just going to read you the update from my project manager who, again, doing a great job. It's just this one part we're talking about. I love you, Brandon. Good morning. (laughs) I hope that your week has been a good one. Update. This week, the interior trim carpenters continued working, working throughout the entirety of the week. The interior cabinetry was delivered and we report the sections of the porch that were removed. Next week, the interior trim carpenters will continue working throughout the week. The cabinetry will be installed and the floor and shower tile will be installed. Please let us know if you have any questions or concerns. Have a great rest of your weekend. Brandon. And essentially every week is about that length with about that much detail. This thing is going to start this week. This thing is going to end this week. Let us know if you have any questions. And about half the time he's right about when things will be done. And that's just the world we live in right now. What's always interesting is maybe a third of the time, there's other things that have happened that he doesn't reference. And the most famous of this was when our windows were installed, which is kind of a big deal when you know there's a window shortage. And it was an impactful moment for my wife. And we just pull over uh, and up the drive to go look at the house. And she's just screaming, ah, there's windows. There's windows. No mention of windows being installed in any email update. Uh, this past week's version was, oh my gosh, we've got four garage doors. Uh, there's three in the side, one in the back that goes to the pool in case it rains. Uh, we don't have a four car garage. Settle down, everybody. Uh, <laughs> but oh my gosh, n- no mention of garage doors. And and so my point That's is not that we have other interaction with Brandon. There's text messages, except, but this is in the system. And my perception is that Brandon has to do this or his boss or his boss's boss. Someone says like, Hey, you didn't send your weekly update. Gotcha. And so somewhere in this organization and maybe yours, there's a checklist that says, Oh, we've improved fire communication because we have a weekly email. Do you really, when's the last time you audited that? When's the last time you read one or two of those yourself and thought, is that like, this is, this is not a motive and project managers are not a motive people often by choice or on purpose. Like we want very calm, mm-hmm. <laughs> highly capable individuals. Just a thought. I don't know. You guys have any other. Yeah. My only thought is if it's going to be emotionless and just a list, like make it a list, like embrace, like what mm-hmm. was completed, what is pending and what is going to start. Like just, and to me, that's easier to, I like lists anyways, but that's easier to yeah. digest. You could very quickly go like boom, 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 boom. And I think it'll be even easier for Brandon or whoever to keep it like it's almost like they're keeping their own list and the email, they have it another way to organize themselves, obviously somewhere else, but it's like right there. I don't know. Just make it either, or like either yep. make it full of excitement and do exciting or just get all the emotion out of it and just make it, here's your list. And then you could throw on details if you want. Like, but mm-hmm. that's like the commas and like, just looking at it, I'm like, this is a lot to read. <laughs> Julie's like having a heart attack over there. Like, <laughs> That's not how you should do it. Comment on that. <laughs> but that's okay. That's yeah. not his. Yeah. 
Okay. Next up on story time, and this is quasi news, but it's really just a discussion because there's not anything you can apply from it at all. But if you haven't heard about Evergrande and this, this got on my radar last Wednesday. So let's see, that would be like the 18th. It's the second largest property developer in China. China, by the way, I believe builds 40 to 50 million residential units a year in apartments, condos, homes, et cetera. So the second largest. This company has, at, at the time when this all broke uh, before the weekend, $300 billion in debt and near default. So they were unable or seemed to be unable to repay uh, loans and bonds that were, that were due. In fact, we're recording Thursday the 23rd. Um, as of now, we believe that they have not paid uh, the bond payment that they were supposed to pay on Thursday. So this company in and real estate in China is where I want to start. And then we're going to slowly work our way through Canada and Europe and to the US and, and see what you guys' thought is on this. So first, a little bit more prep about China's real estate program. So the way that the system is set up, individual Chinese households can't invest outside of China in the stock market. They can't invest in the US stock market or they're not supposed to. It's, it's highly regulated. They don't really trust the local stock market. And so the best vehicle for investment of personal wealth is real estate. And real estate has tripled in value many times across the country. And so what happens is you've got people with kind of upper middle um, income jobs who own three or four apartments or condos because that's the safest place in their mind to put their money because the value never goes down. That should remind you of something people said in 2007 yeah. and six. Um, the value never goes down. Uh, it's it's a solid asset. It increases in value over time. And and so what's happened is this person might own three or four of these units. There's no property taxes in China. So you if you don't live there and you don't use much utility other than just keeping it warm enough not to break and cold enough uh, not to break, there's really not that much regular maintenance or expense other than condo fees, et cetera. And that leads to a ton of residential units all over China not being lived in. Hmm. And so there's all kinds of articles you can find about ghost cities and they've got like places that they've rebuilt to look like parts of France or London. And the only thing it's used for is weddings. People hold weddings there because the backdrops are beautiful and then everyone leaves and the city is empty other than all these investment homes that are, that are bought. Okay. So that's kind of, how 20 over 20 percent of china's gdp every year comes from real estate now the next part of the huh. of the layer here is that local townships or counties kind of think of them like that they're responsible for a lot of the services uh, uh the social social services that the country provides at their level but they don't get revenue from taxes most of the taxes revenue goes back to the federal government there i don't even know if that's the right term they're not a federal system, but it goes to the, the Communist Party. And so the only way that the local governments really can make money is rural land is not allowed to be owned. It's common to the people. You farm it, you grow stuff, you share the what you grow. And so the governments, local governments, have the ability to convert rural land and then to land that can be developed and then auction it off to the developers. And essentially what has happened for a long time now is that each developer is in on the agreement, basically, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Every 
for time a project can be auctioned, it must go for a higher value per acre, essentially, than the previous one. So that the value of each project only increases. Hmm. And that has led to things like in Beijing and Shenzhen, two of the largest cities in China, a modest apartment, two bedrooms can go for a million dollars. And the average household income in all of China is still under 10. So you're like, how are all these people affording this stuff? Where is it going? Kind of sounds like a bubble a little bit. And that all this leading into Evergrande is the second largest developer. They have thousands of projects going on in over 200 cities across China. Wow. They had a financial issue early this year. It's, it's been a long time coming, actually. People have been forecasting this for up to 10 years. But they had a liquidity issue, not enough money to keep the company running. So they ran a pre-sale without fail event in February of 2021, where they offered amazing value on homes to be built. Did not exist yet, but you could get 25% off. Like crazy sales, everyone in China losing their minds. Like, I, how can I not buy this? It's just going to go up. And so what that led to is there's one and a half million sold but not completed homes. Wow. That individual Chinese citizens or investors have paid for that are not able to be moved into. All work on all these projects has essentially stopped. The value of steel out of Australia dropped like a rock uh, over the weekend and on Monday. The U.S. stock market loses a thousand points uh, at the lowest on Monday. It's since recovered, but everyone was concerned looking at this, like, oh my gosh, this is China's Lehman Brothers going out of business, great financial crisis. It's going to hit there and it's going to cascade around the world. Since then, it, it seems to have calmed down a little bit. The Chinese government is saying that they're going to let things go, but they're also telling the local counties and, and municipalities to do whatever is necessary at the last minute to prevent chaos from erupting. <laughs> so there's, there's lots of angles to this. One, it's interesting to see, even if this doesn't snowball into a bigger issue, most people think it still will slow down the Chinese economy because of how important real estate is to individual household wealth and the percept, perceived value of that real estate. So unlike Lehman Brothers, Lehman didn't have any collateral assets like land that they own. They just own derivatives and mortgage-backed securities and these other financial assets. There's still land here. So some people say, well, I mean, so they go bankrupt. Those buildings are still there that are partially built. There's land underneath it, so there's value there. But if a whole bunch of that becomes available at once, supply and demand still generally rules and says, yep. well, how, you know, you don't want people questioning what is the value of this really. So that's so like a mess. It is know. a mess. And it's going to be interesting to see how, how it rolls out. And, and the economy economists keep weighing back and forth on this is if it, even if it implodes, it's just going to be a Chinese related problem or, you know, some people think it could be a, a bigger issue. So I'm watching this just as, as my house is, you know, needs to close. And I'm just like, please no, then blow up until my house <laughs> currently closes. And then <laughs> all's well, I've already closed yeah. on the construction loan on my other house. Um, so there's that. And immediately what I thought of going through this whole scenario is places like Vancouver, Toronto, so Canadian companies where kind of the same thing is happening, where you've got a lot of foreign buyers, you've got a ton of investors, where someone will do a condo project of hundreds of units, it will sell out in a month, primarily to real estate agents and investors who are flipping it to the next seller almost immediately. And then that made me think about a couple different housing markets in the U.S., and then yep. that led us to 
a TikTok video. To it all TikTok. comes back to TikTok, of, right? Of so all the TikTok rules the world. I'm going to play this for us here, and then we'll we'll comment on it. And uh, before we begin, I just want to say I have no idea that any of this is true. In fact, I'm pretty sure most of it is not true. We'll talk more about it, but I still think it's interesting and worth us taking a listen to. I've been a real estate agent for about 11 years now. And let's talk about the housing crisis. And let's talk about some what ifs. What if there was a company that everybody used, everybody used, everybody knew of to look for houses. And everybody goes on there and searches for houses when they're bored and stuff. And so that company, they just sit back and they just collect all the data. They just know what zip code is looking at what zip code and how much those people can afford Everyone's looking at this one zip code. Everybody seems to be able to afford this certain amount. And let's say that billion-dollar company uses that information to go into that zip code and start purchasing houses. Because the people that are selling their houses, even though they sell it for a little bit less sometimes than what the home could actually be worth, and they pay these high fees to this billion-dollar company, it's a convenience factor. So this company is scooping up houses less than what they actually could cost. And let's say that that company – excuse me, Canoe – that company – buys 30 homes within a two mile radius. And let's say the price is 300,000. So they buy all of these homes for 300,000. And then on the 31st home, they buy it for 340. Even though they know all of the all of the comps because most people have to get a loan. And if you get a loan, you have to get an appraisal, which means the appraiser is gonna look at what homes have sold in the area for that size and that price per square foot. So, they're paying cash. They don't. They don't need an appraisal. Why would they pay three forty for this thirty first home? Whatever they've only paid three hundred for these others. Well, what that just did is create a new comp. So when they go to sell these other thirty homes, that extra forty thousand dollars that you could say this one sold for three forty just made them one point two million off that one neighbor because they know from their research how much people can afford in that zip code here. And let's say that then they're going to come in. They bought that home at 340 that still needs work. So they're going to come in and do the good old paint, spackle, and change the carpet and call it a remodel. So now we can sell them for 360 Because we know off of our data, that's how much people can afford. Wouldn't that be weird if a company did that? And then say that this company also starts letting you um, use their own lenders and their own title and escrow company. It makes you write your contract on their contract, not the one that your state uses. Wouldn't that be a weird world to live in? My goodness, I can't imagine us living in that world. Can you? Well. <laughs> All right, first... so obviously he's targeting Zillow and yep. maybe Redfin in, the, That's in a, that discussion. How many views on that? A lot of views. I don't know. It's hard to see uh, on, this, on the embed. I think it's 39 million something. It's hard to tell. It's it's embedded and it's... Uh, oh, meh. Well, yeah. 360,000 likes and so probably 30 something of 10% of people liked it and whatnot. Yeah. So what's interesting is that almost immediately this has gotten actual responses from both Redfin and Zillow saying, no, that's crazy. That would never happen. And again, I don't, I don't think that those companies in particular would do anything like that either. Um, they're both well-run, well-respected organizations. The thing about that that does ring true, though, is how much money is pouring into real estate generally. So as an example, Mike Lyon's mom house uh, was sold to an iBuyer. And they offered 
significantly more than what Mike or anyone in his family thought the home was worth. Now, it could just be that, it, that everyone was wrong on the value. But the part where he's talking about no appraisal, that's the part so many people are saying, again, no bubble, nothing to be worried about here because buyers still have to get loans. And that means they're going to have uh, high credit scores. And so everything is fine. But when it comes to appraisals and comps, I do think things can can go sideways faster than we might think. And in Mike's case for his mom's house, the ultimate source of funds was not the iBuyer directly. It was Goldman Sachs. So these large investment organizations are giving cash. So th that's the part where I don't think Zillow and Redfin are setting out to do anything like what this guy's describing. It's interesting how popular his theory has, you know, how viral it's become. Maybe that shouldn't be surprising in everything else we, we were dealing with. But let's just say that someone called you up, Julie, and said, um, we've got an extra $80 billion sitting around and we need things to buy that are going to be worth something and might increase in value. And we need a lot of it. I think that will change how you act. It's not that you're trying to do anything nefarious. You're just saying, what is the risk curve here? Really? It's not my money. It's someone else's money. And money's almost free because interest rates are low. I don't know. And you guys have any other thoughts here? For me, it's, it's just amazing how fast things are changing, you know, from a few years ago, like to even think this through a few years ago, how much Zillow has grown and how much power they have and data and connection they have just the change in this amount of time. Yeah. Some people may say that that would never happen, but just think of how much stuff has shifted just in a few years in that world. So it's kind of scary. Very true. The whole time I was thinking, I'm like, couldn't you say the same thing, remove Zillow's name and say individual real estate agents not acting in, in coordination? Like, aren't, is, aren't they essentially doing the same thing with, I mean, they have less power, so there's less influence, but like a buyer's agent and a seller's agent, a seller's I, agent wants a high price buyer's agent. They do want a low price because they want to provide value to their buyer. But if it goes, they make more money when it's. They have an incentive to, to not lower the well, price that's, too much. That's right? why appraisers Which are is crazy. Thing. So the appraisers are in there, but don't they all know each other? And maybe I'm sounding conspiracy. Like, yeah, you sound a little conspiracy. And, they they and do the know each other. But... There's regulation. There's all this stuff. It's like, uh -huh. oh, I, I won't use that inspector because they're hard on homes. I'm going to use this one when we're selling. We'll use this one when we're buying. I'm like, okay. Like, I'm not saying the person we used did that, but I feel like there's muddy on both ends. Like, it's it's not. 100%. I think the danger zones, and again, this isn't about Redfin or Zillow intentionally doing anything wrong. The point is, there's so much money. And anytime someone says, we don't need an appraisal, and also, yeah, crazy. Goldman Sachs doesn't need a credit check. Like, they're providing cash. So mm -hmm. they can make, they, they can move the market wherever they want. I think that's where the potential for, for danger is an interesting thought. And again, Glenn Kalman from Redfin came out pretty quickly and said, hey, where Redfin's concerned, this is untrue. We offer every homeowner a choice of a cash offer or a brokered sale, sharing the data we use to price the home. We tell the owner he or she will net more money via brokered sale. We would rather sell the home without owning it. So they're saying, hey, the, kind of the initial premise here is, is incorrect. Continued, we'd never intentionally underpay or overpay for a home. It's madness to overpay for a single home in order to set a high water mark for other sales. 
We reward the analysts who price homes on the accuracy with which they predicted the ultimate sale price. Again, great point uh, that I don't think Redfin would ever do that intentionally, but would Goldman Sachs would, um, uh, what's the other uh, big one? I can never remember these guys' names. Open door. No. Um, offer pad. What's the one that went public? Uh, um, BlackRock. Like uh, I'm, I'm just talking about people who are not in real estate who just have all gotcha. the cash, right? Aren't gotcha. they yeah, going to be more open to saying, well, that makes sense to me. I mean, isn't that what stocks are based off of, right? Like a set amount of a portion of a company sells for more money. And then suddenly that entire company is worth more money. Yeah. So I just wish we could get investment banks out to the extent that they are in right now. That would make me feel better. Um, now he says there is a conspiracy between iBuyers, but it's to pay lower commissions to the brokers representing the buyer of the homes we sell. That may be one reason some brokers dislike iBuyers. So he kind of says, Hey, you might have a reason as a person who's been in real estate for 11 years to push this conspiracy theory out there. Anyway, that's my story time segment. Wow. We went that's all around the world, China back again, Evergrande, TikTok. TikTok. <laughs> it's all in there. We should just end the episode now. <laughs> It's, it's been a while. Hey, everybody. Mike Lyon here to announce the first ever online sales leadership roundtable. That's right. Get excited. This brand new year-long program is designed specifically for online sales leaders who are looking to bring their management skills to the next level. You get to connect with your leadership peers, plus gain field-tested access to the resources that will help your online sales program reach peak performance. Visit doyouconvert.com slash events to learn more and apply to this exclusive program today. Let's head over to the news. First up, content creation versus content curation, a guide for social media managers. Hmm. So let's define the terms real quick. Content creation is the process of creating your own content from scratch and marketing it to your followers or subscribers. That could be a blog, social media post, or thread, ebook, video, image, reel, story, and so on. Content curation is the process of gathering existing information like blog posts, et cetera, uh, shared by other people or brands and sharing it with your followers. I would add ideally with your own thought process layered over top of it, but we can talk more about that as we dive in. This is from our friends at Agora Pulse. And according to the research, the sweet spot is a 60-40 ratio of content curation versus content creation in their tests. Suggests the lion's share of time should be dedicated to finding, organizing, annotating, and sharing content of the highest quality. What do you guys think? Well, I disagree with that 60-40 for our industry. I mean, I get they're saying on content curation, they're saying from other sources. So bringing in an article about financing from somewhere else or bringing on... For, for us, I feel like the content curation needs to be what you've created, then curating it in a new way. So the photos you already have in a photo gallery, the different information about neighborhoods in a hub somewhere or a blog, putting it all together. So um, yeah, you'll use a little bit of outside content from places, but I feel like it's going to be more creating more and then reusing what you've created in different ways. Makes total sense to me at the floor plan level at your community level. I think where the 60-40 split, and maybe even higher, 80-20 could come into play would be the town or the region. So, you know, in terms of employers, 
sure. local restaurants, that, that type of thing. Um, in fact, one thing that we talked about at this year's summit briefly, I'm not even sure, I, I said it so fast, I'm not sure if anyone even took notes on it, was the concept of looking at like the, the six most Instagrammable places in Columbus, Ohio, and then simply embedding straight from Instagram, uh, the content from th those shots in your, in your posts. So that now your, now your blog post is done and you're using all this content that's curated from, from other people who want to be influencers, et cetera, around town. Yep. I like that approach versus this team seems to imply like 60% of your blog posts could be yours. 40% could be completely someone else's, but I think it's you sprinkle in like that, but it's all looks like it's yours. I don't think anyone's going to fall in love with the builder if they're seeing like almost half their content is another company's content, but yeah. it's intermixed and sprinkled in there. Like if I were to go on financing, then you talk about it and then like, then you can reference where the information came from, but it still looks like it's yours. Yeah. That's my point with curation is I think curation is an incredibly important thing to be doing always as a marketer, but it doesn't take that much effort. But from a positioning standpoint, which the article talks about, if you don't start with two or three sentences of context and what your thoughts are, or end with two or three sentences of context and what your thoughts are, in addition to what it is you're curating, if it's from a third party, then I, I don't think the consumer or your audience is ever going to see the full potential value. You look at a list um, like yeah. uh, email newsletters. I don't know what even what they call. They're, they're usually all text. And they're kind of the the new hot thing from Substack or whatever. You know, someone's going to send you out a list of ten articles worth reading that you're subscribed to. Even those in their simplest form, there's almost always a sentence or two about why this is worth reading before you go link out to it. So they're they're doing yeah. kind of the most straightforward form of curation of just here's a bunch of links that you can click on and go read. But let me tell you why you should. Even though that's just a small bit of text added it adds a ton of additional value to the audience. Definitely. I think we've all seen it on Facebook where someone shares, whether it's a feature about them or they're just sharing something and there's no input from their account, their personal account of why they shared a link or a video. It's just like share now. You're like, why did you do that? That's so weird. At least maybe my age and my, my use on Facebook. I'm like, that's weird. Like, am I supposed to watch this thing you shared without giving context of why you did it? I think it's the same thought. Also, breaking news, can we cut it out already with the notifications from websites? Oh, my goodness. This yes. is most annoying. Mm -hmm. Who, raise your hand or tell me of any website that you want to receive notifications from ever. Do you convert.com? No. <laughs> no? I wouldn't. No, if I want to go read it, I'll go look at it. No. Yeah, I don't think of any. Because already you have that, then you have like the cookies thing, and then you'll probably have a pop-up about, it's like four things to get through. Yeah. No, take it away. Forget it. All right. Um, from Forbes.com, Facebook admits it reported faulty numbers to advertisers, blames Apple. Normally, Facebook is on the hot seat for reporting numbers that are too large. Yeah. But in this case, Andrew. Yeah, up to 15% less successful they're reporting your campaigns could be. So this is where like it kind of goes back to my story time of attribution. If you're obsessing over attribution, you're like, man, my Facebook ads aren't working but your leads are up, appointments are up, but attributed to Facebook, you're like, Facebook's not doing it. And now they're even worse than they were before. So that's where like that could have, you know, given you issues because this is showing, I guess your cost per lead could have been 15% higher, clicks 15% lower, up to 15%, which is interesting. And, and they do say in there, they're having a difficult time measuring reach, which is essentially, that's the lowest, most easily measured metric 
essentially like who did we reach? What account? Is this yeah. a unique account compared to other accounts? I think what everyone missed on what Apple is doing is they said, hey, we're just not going to provide this data. But they also said even the data that is being provided is going to be throttled. There's only so much bandwidth, so much data we're going to allow through, period. And so that that's why it, it makes no sense. How could Facebook not know what's being viewed on their own app on Apple? But if Apple decides, hey, we're just going to block every second or third attempt to show yeah. Facebook what's been shown or, or actually viewed, not shown. Facebook knows what's been sent from the server, but did someone actually view it and for how long, et cetera? I'll so, say... Um... Fifty percent is a big is a big miss yeah, too, and then again, some, this is underreported. So, it, the Facebook and Instagram campaigns did fifteen percent better in terms of driving a desired result than they actually reported. They underreported. Yep. Because I'm of glad that. they underreported versus keeping it neutral or the opposite. So that's I don't right. know. But people, some people hate Facebook, but I think that's that's good. That shows yeah. some integrity, <laughs> I guess. I don't know. And I, I also think it's interesting that. They're saying it's going to continue to be tough and it's it's having a bigger impact than they expected. I read this from our perspective, Andrew and Julie, of imp implementing Facebook conversion API is a lot harder. So in, in other things that Facebook has had to roll out, they put on the full court press, this, they call you incessantly, they email you and they're like, oh we just goodness. need you to hit this button. Or the next time you go to create a campaign, hey, there's a new option and setting up the conversion API to get the data from the server that is missing is a much more complex process. And, you know, we've been able to partner with the folks at uh, O'Neill Interactive and Homefinity pretty much, well, at this point, every builder we work with who's on the Homefinity platform has the conversion API up and running because that's now part of the Homefinity. Um, running and working. CMS. I think yes. that's, <laughs> that is important I think distinctions. That's, that's important. It's, um, yeah, it's extremely com complex and there's no leaving names out of it. Like there's, the help docs are terrible. So I was on a, on a call with O'Neill and another group who is a very capable, very talented team. And just like, they're kind of left in the dark, the developers are. Fortunately, this is not a sales pitch, but O'Neill has been working on technical end of, with Facebook for I don't know how many years. I, I don't want to say yeah, never. One of the few a very few long partners time. in real estate with them. So yeah. They learn the unspoken weirdness of API with Facebook. There's just, it's not as um, easy as you would think. And so they figure out like, oh, you have to do this. They don't say it anywhere, but that's what you have to do. Oh, okay. So. That's exciting. Yeah, seeing that, seeing that roll out. This uh, this episode brought to you by Forbes.com. Oh, yeah. Also from the site. One. In fact, I'm I'm up to my third out of four free articles here. So we're oh, no. about creating an account <laughs> so should. they can track me and send me notifications from the website. Disney is harnessing the power of influencers with its Disney Creator Lab. Tell me why I should care, Julie, because I really don't. Um, <laughs> you should. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I care about the article, but in, I mean, for goodness sakes. Yeah, I feel like Disney is trying to get some some PR here. And basically all Disney is doing is putting on a free class and inviting influencers to it so they get more visibility. I think they, they like mm -hmm. the buzzwords and so they yeah. put out a press release. <laughs> I view this as just like any other multi-level marketing approach, they don't care how many people do great content. This whole idea is get as many people to be talking about Disney as possible across as many yep. platforms as possible. It's not about, Hey, make sure, you know, you're holding the camera right. And you use the best. They're just like, I imagine. Cause the Again. people, yeah. So I, I found this because I know someone that's part of this program. Um, I'm like, that's, <laughs> that's interesting. That's the only way I, I, I saw this. 
And I'm like, they've been at Disney a lot. Like, and we're, I'm down here in Tampa. It's like an hour and a half away. Um, it's not that bad if you don't hit traffic. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And they already know what they're doing. And I assume the application process, people already know what they're doing. Like Disney's not teaching anything. It's, to me, this is almost the equivalent of Forbes. What's it? The council member, like where you're. Yeah, you're paying. You're, you're paying to be on Forbes, except this, you're not paying. You're, you're getting free Disney tickets um, mm-hmm. is, is for what I understand. And then they're looking for certain people certain yeah. people types. So they put at the bottom, like we're looking for a diverse group of people. There's big t- 20. So like talking candidly with, with um, the guy who's there, he's like, they picked us because of this. I'm like, Oh, okay, cool. Thanks for telling me like why they picked and because of their skills and all that stuff. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's interesting that they're using that too. I agree with you. I truly getting around some publicity things because they've changed a lot of their product, which definitely makes it less attractive to go. Um, well, at least- I, I mean, the only other thing about this that I could be interesting is Disney creators lab is what they're calling it. And what a lot of YouTubers and since then, uh, Instagram influencers and TikTok, whatever they are, talkers, talkers, <laughs> I'll say talkers <laughs> like that. You know, the, the goal I think is to get more and more ownership or one potential goal could be. So if I'm Disney and I'm thinking I'm spending a lot of money sending out 500 people in a month to the parks for free and I don't know what they're saying. I don't have very much control. If someone goes to Disney Creators Lab, they create two or three pieces of content that do really well. Does Disney tap them on the shoulder and say, hey, wouldn't you like more stable revenue? I mean, we'll still pay you a bunch, but you just sign this and we'll create a relationship. And now we can kind of tell you, don't say that. Don't do this. Yeah. Control I, I think message. that's everyone wants more and more control. And I think that's the other part of this that that is at the end of the day. I guess why I came into this so sarcastically, Julie, is they're, they're just trying to sell you beep, you know, and that, like, I love Disney. I love Disney world. I love all this stuff, but it's not about creating a better message. It's just, let's get as much noise out there as possible about who we are and what we do. That seems boring to me. This is like, they're, they're, they're free. If a, a home builder was looking to hire a content creator, this is what Disney did. They have now 20 free content creators free in a sense, like the parks already open. So bringing someone else is not a cost. They already have, I would assume the staff on place doing these things are like, all right, every eight weeks or whatever time period, like you have to dedicate two hours to these people that come in. So like, there's no, there's probably not that much additional cost. Now they have 20 free employees or minimal cost employees that are going to push their branding and ads out essentially. Popcorn. Talker. Yeah, I just the, here, here's TikTok, whatever. But I, I, I love hating on it. It's fun. Uh, top, top <laughs> topics on TikTok by hashtag categories: entertainment, dance, pranks, fitness, home reno, beauty and skincare, fashion, and cooking. Yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Learning, learning, and being dopamine dripped. Right. Dopamine drip. That's, that's, that's the answer. All right. Also, Julie threw in a last minute addition, which I think is a good conversation as well from Forbes.com rise of the chief resilience officer. The case for elevating resilience to the C-suite gets stronger with every new crisis. Why'd you want to talk about this one, Julie? Yeah, basically they sucked me in, you know, they put suggested articles underneath and I, I liked this, um, this headline, but what they're talking about is bigger companies actually hiring um, a chief resilience officer to get you through saying the companies that are going to end up succeeding are the ones that are 
able to like weather those turbulent times. And I don't think builders should go out and hire a chief resilience officer, but I think that we have a lot of leaders that we work with who could just appoint themselves in that role to themselves to help their companies. And I think a lot of companies need it and they need somebody to step into that role to be looking more long-term about how to weather different, weird, turbulent markets. Yeah, I think this is the quote I like. It says, some companies really are more resilient and more able to withstand upheaval. Of course, that raises another important question. If general resilience is indeed possible, how can organizations build it? So we're talking about here is there's definitely organizations that that we've worked with and we know who, you know, a sales manager leaves or a VP of sales and marketing leaves and everything goes off the rail. And then you have another organization where an employee leaves and it's sad and no one likes losing a team member, but the next person steps in and things proceed kind of as expected. Even when you talk about, you know, why are ratings and reviews so important? It's because something will go wrong. It's housing. It's complicated. And so you need to have that resiliency built in that that proves to everyone that this was a random occurrence versus a consistent issue. Um, but is there other areas of resiliency in particular that you were thinking about, Julie? Well, I think I was thinking mostly, you know, with the, with the market, because like you said, it's going to change. But I also think it's just um, got to be in the culture of your company. I think when we saw, you know, even last year with, with COVID, some companies were better than others at what was Jesse's term pivoting (laughs) that pivot. So I think just um, instilling a culture of being able to pivot is what home builders, some builders had a lot of trouble with. And some builders already kind of had that culture built in where they had that flexibility to be able to move with those changes. Yeah. And I think also what's interesting about that that just hit me is a lot of companies made the pivot and to what degree and how fast, you know, certainly there's variations there, but the bigger question and the more important question right now, since we're through the stage of the immediate pivot being necessary is how that is weighing on the employees. So you've got some people who have made it through and made those necessary adjustments and everyone is stressed out of their gosh darn minds. And then there's other people you talk to and are like, yeah, everything's good. No, sales team's good. Online sales is good. And what is it about that uh, culture and setup that's allowed them to be resilient in the sense of they can proceed on without this extra burden or like pig pen, like cloud floating around everything. Yeah. Oh yeah. We're, you know, we're, we're making it happen. It's happening. It's all, it's all, we might die tomorrow, but we, we made it so far. It's another day. This, this sort of reminds me of the, um, like a customer experience position. Initially you're like, why would we need that? Like anything new, you have resistance to change. And, and my, my thought, this is the sort of same thing. Like this person is dedicated to thinking about risk across the entire company. So they need to be like almost unfireable sort of mm-hmm. because they need to call out every department, every person like, oh, this person stresses everyone out. This is a risk. At least the way I'm looking at this, like, oh, supply chain management, like we don't have this. They need to really understand the entire picture. I don't know what you'd pay this type of person to understand the entire system and find faults of what will break and what will not break. That's why I just found it easier times. to tell my boss every time someone gives us a bad review or something breaks, give me another 10 grand I like for my marketing approach. budget. Like, and it's like, what? Like, well, I have to what? outshout them now. You piss this, this person off. It's going to cost me in $2,009, 10 grand to outshout them. That's my price. And that, 
as silly as that was, that started him down the line of, well, maybe we should fix that, you know, $50 thing that's annoying the customer. Yeah. Instead of giving 10, 10 grand to market. It's almost like those two people could be like best friends, like the customer experience, because they're, they're one's like internal and one is external, very similar um, things, but they need to be able to like call, call out issues without feeling like they can't. Otherwise they're, yeah they're wasting their time. So speaking of conspiracy theories, Google ads will combine smart and standard display campaigns, says search engine land.com. They're doing this because they love us, right, Andrew? They want, they love our money. I think (laughs) they want us to spend more. Um, So smart campaigns for those who are not familiar, which I I think I'd be okay if you're not familiar with them um, because I, I wouldn't recommend running them. Essentially, it's like a Facebook conversion campaign. It's using conversion data to optimize delivery of Google display ads. But if you have the budget for Google display ads, throw them over, throw it over to Facebook instead of Google display. Um, so they're combining the two. Really, there's, they're trying to make it easy for you to use smart campaigns is, is the end goal. How smart are smart campaigns for those of us just joining uh, the program? So for home building, not very smart. <laughs> I've seen success in... Isn't that like, if they call it a smart campaign, like, isn't is that it, by default? I was I was reading someone on Twitter smart. said, mm. you know, when someone says that there's been a price improvement on a home for sale, I literally, does that make you feel like if something good happened? Really? The price went down. The price went price down. It's a price high. improvement. They did that on the home that we've kind of talked about that's in the community across uh-huh. from me. They price improvement. They dropped it by, I think, 25,000. But now it's pending at five at the new price. So price oh, improved. That's the other thing. So yeah, smart campaigns are dumb most of the time. Yeah, you have don't to don't trust automated recommendations. You have to have so many conversions to get them working. It just won't work for us. So if you're Lennar, smart smart campaigns might be a thing. But maybe or if, if you're, you're Rocket Mortgage and you're doing refi leads, mm-hmm. that's that's really who that's it's made exactly. for. Exactly. Someone like that. So running out on a on a happy note before we we break Ooh. is yeah. builders are lowering their prices. And not necessarily always because they have to, but because they're trying to move ahead. This is something that's come up on several of our calls the past week is um, just yesterday, someone said the average lumber cost on one of our homes has dropped by $40,000, all types of lumber and material. So we're just lowering our prices now. I mean, why, why not get ahead of it? I think that's interesting. One, you got to have a strategy, not just because the, the cost went down, your price should not necessarily be following that. But, you know, again, overall lead volume is improved over the last couple couple times. So just because your cost goes down doesn't mean your price should go down. And lead volume as a percentage of website traffic is increasing, according to our aggregated data. Mm-hmm. And most of what we're seeing is that homes that get near completion or at completion are still selling quickly. I mean, someone yesterday from Texas was complaining they had two homes that had been sitting for uh, a week and they hadn't sold yet. It's like, you know, I just had to turn my head sideways and be like, is that really a long time? <laughs> no, oh, yeah, no, it's good. Like, we're, we're good. <laughs> so I, again, I save the freak out, save the drama for your mama, freak out on another time. This is not the time to freak out. But it is interesting. I just wanted to report to everyone that there are several builders that we work with who have decided voluntarily, even though they don't have finished inventory that's available, uh, really to encourage more pre-sale activity. I think more than anything else, they are dropping cost or pr- price along with cost reductions that are coming in from lumber. I think 
that's hmm. interesting development. Yeah, that is interesting. Wonder if that'll be a trend we'll see. Yep. Around. Oh, I I think what's interesting is people are just not worried about it. Normally, there'd be a lot of hand wringing about, well, if people in the backlog see that, what are they going to do? And now everyone's kind of like, we don't care. Okay. Probably because when they bought nine months ago, you could still cancel them and resell it for more than what those people originally offered. All right. That'll do it for this week. For published articles, blog posts, videos, and more, check out deconvert.com. It's also the best way to find out how to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and everywhere else we are online. We'll see you next week. See ya. Bye.